This broadcast is brought to you by Integrity Staffing Solutions. At Integrity, we're passionate about connecting great talent with great companies across North America. For more information on how our custom, flexible workforce solutions can help solve your biggest challenges, visit us online at integritystaffing.com. We're now listening to HR Liftoff in three, Welcome back, HR Lift Offers. I'm your host, Megan Couch. I'm happy to have with us and welcome Andrew Bartlow. He is founder and managing partner at Series B Consulting and co-author of Scaling for Success, Priorities for High Growth Organizations. And he has over 25 years of talent management experience, and he works with several clients all over. Um, so welcome, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Megan. Did I miss anything? I could have oh. gone on for two more minutes, Andrew. We have a smart <laughs> guy on the podcast. Tonight. It's a long intro, isn't it? Yeah. Too many, too many plates spinning at the same time. I could have said awesome parent, you know, lives I, on the I West guess. Coast. Yeah. Well, we don't try. ask my girls about that. Yeah. Don't ask my son either. I mean, it's just yeah. us. I mean, our polling. You know, so I feel good. Right. right. Uh, so we have a lot of listeners uh, that are specifically in the HR field. And I was listening to another podcast that you did, and I thought it was very relevant. Uh, and the host was basically saying, like, how are you still doing it? Like, so 25 plus years in, and I, I, I think it's relevant because I talk to a lot of HR folks, too. And it is almost like a craft where I think you have to, you build yourself into it. Um, but what kind of drives you to continue down this field as, as a craft, like help you drive other people there? Boy, what a, what a relevant and timely question and topic, right? There's so many HR professionals opting out and burning out and flaming out between COVID and so, social justice issues and uh, work from home and demands on our time and, you know, working parents, especially in the COVID mm-hmm. school era. Um, what, what drives me to, to do it? I was fortunate enough to be able to adapt how I do it. So call it three years ago, I had a great exit from a real estate tech company and I pulled my parachute and uh, was able to write the book and start consulting which gave me more control over how I do the HR work. So I can pick my clients, I can set my own hours, and I bet there are a bunch of HR professionals that are a, a little jealous. <laughs> They're <laughs> like, like, well, that no. sounds nice. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for the tips, Andrew. Just have a great exit. And, and, you and can uh, do thank that. you. Great to have you, Andrew. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I, hey, I, I got lucky and I was able to do things, you know. Um, with with a bit more control and a bit more choice and um and that extended my career in hr so i'm able to do some of the the work that i consider fun the organizational development work working between boards and ceos and mentoring hr leaders and uh, i started an executive ed uh, program called people leader accelerator that helps other hr leaders be more successful and so I get a lot of fulfillment out of helping other people navigate through the school of hard knocks that I had to sail on my own. Um, and that's why I'm still in it. 
Well, I would imagine uh, with all the mentoring and coaching that you do, within a certain probably finite amount of time, you're like, oh, we're good. Like, I, I can see it. You know what I mean? Like, let's. I, there's a lot of opportunity here. And I think a lot of folks listening, you hit the nail on the head where it's the change in work type and especially the pandemic. Have you seen different kind of questions or themes come out of that, especially in like with the HR folks? Because I think there's there was a, a divide, frankly, like those that were essential and those that had to keep working specifically mm-hmm. on site at an organization, you know, and those that did have to balance work from home those were different. Uh, But so do you think those are more common themes that you've seen recently and that folks still have to deal with? Like, I I feel like we still need to figure it out. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're going to have the tail of the tape, you know, time will tell um, in, in terms of how much do jobs move back to an on-premise environment? um, How much work uh, in a distributed way continues. Just read a, an article this morning that said that office, commercial office capacity is back up to 31%, mm. which, do, which doesn't sound very high, but that's way up from earlier in the pandemic. It was in the 20s. So, you know, some, some groups are moving back into the office. I have clients that are, um, that really have a full spectrum of knowledge workers, which can you know, be based anywhere as long as they have a laptop and a, and a headset like we have um, to, you know, restaurants and movie theaters and gyms and those, uh, those workplaces, you have to be there. You have to physically be there to bring right. somebody the burger or, you know, check them in. Um, and so those environments have had to be in person the entire time. Um, and in HR, I think we're finding that most of our human resources jobs can be done remotely. They can be. I would say with, and I I would agree, but I think that, and I probably should ask this first, but I think a lot of folks think of HR in either a black and white way. If Mm. If you haven't experienced HR, or maybe I'll speak for myself personally, but if you haven't experienced it, done it, let an organization in it uh, and think like, oh, either like, oh, they're HR or OHR. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you're like, you know what I mean? It's a very like, uh, and in my mind, I think like, I can't even imagine because HR, you know, beyond, you know, compensation and benefits, beyond performance management, you know, beyond organizational leadership, a lot of times learning departments and areas, you know, and for the whole org, I'm like, how do they keep everything straight? Like, how do they scale? Because I think very much during the pandemic, we have a lot of clients that were still on site and on premise, where I don't know who went to school for how to plan during a pandemic. Right. Right. And like, you know, but now you have that experience. And so you can take that somewhere else or put those learnings in place. Um, And I imagine you saw this, the, what are some key mistakes, if you can, of course, not based on company, but just some maybe common mistakes that you see when people are trying to scale up or scale down or, or put steps into place that will help them scale? Yeah. Well, boy, there's a lot wrapped up in, in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think the first question was, uh, how do we keep it all straight? Yes. And, <laughs> and I'd say most of us don't. Most of us don't keep it all straight. We're, we're, you know, hair on fire trying to do as much as we possibly can and burning the candle at both ends, you know, juggling work 
life and, and family, waking up early and you know checking email at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And, and far too many HR professionals are absolutely burning out as a result of trying to keep up with all these various demands that are coming at us from more places with with more criticality than maybe ever before. You know, add in the great resignation, um, mm. you know, to the back end of the pandemic impact. And HR people are really feeling the pinch. Um, and, and that may lead into, you know, the, the second question around um, how do companies scale? How do companies grow? And the answer for both is linked. So how do you avoid burnout? How do you keep it all straight? And how do you grow? Um, it's by being really selective about what you work on. It's about saying no or not yet or great idea, we'll tackle that next quarter. Um, it, it's about prioritizing and aligning with your stakeholders and that's org planning and that's goal setting and that's often easier said than done. Uh, but at the same time, it's not rocket science. It, it's understanding that to best serve your organization, to best serve the people that work there, and to be the best version of yourself as an HR pro, it's to keep your promises. And, and that means setting realistic expectations about what you can deliver and understanding what's most important to your organization right now. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of HR Liftoff. What tips and tricks do you use to help set realistic expectations for yourself and others? Be sure to let us know in the comments. Now back to the show. So I think it's perfect timing. So I heard you say in another podcast, resist the temptation to complicate Mm -hmm. in in relation to planning. I was like, he said that very well. I've probably (laughs) heard that 40 different times, but it's probably within a paragraph. I'm like, what are they trying to actually say? So yes, resist the temptation to complicate. And so not just for HR, but in relation to planning. And while, like you said, it sounds very easy. And I I will admittedly say, sometimes I have to put together a project plan. I'm like, where? Like, this is a big spreadsheet, like wondering where I'm going to start now. And then I'm like, I might switch over to something else just to get the juices flowing. Um, But you have a pretty concise way, I think, of describing, starting off with, like, make a simple plan. You know, start from there, prioritize, you know, was another big one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think as people get wrapped up, especially during pandemic, it does seem overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that feeling of overwhelm. Um, I, I think is really natural and it's really human. And many people enter the human resources profession in part because we are people pleasers. We want people to feel good and happy and satisfy those requests. And we get the endorphins flowing from being able to solve something or resolve something. Um, and in today's environment, there's just too much coming at us from too many areas. And it's often conflicting with each other. And it's just, you, you have to start, it's what a 12 step program. Like number one mm-hmm. is just admitting that there's a problem. Right. You have to start mm-hmm. by admitting that there's a problem. And then what do you do about it? And I suggest, hopefully this is succinct, um, that you start by identifying what's most important right now to your organization. And HR departments and HR pros often get you know, kind of stuck in HR land off on the island of here's what's important to HR. 
versus being really clear with the linkage between what's important to your company. And if you're making too much of a logic leap, like, oh, if you just take care of the employees, it'll end up being good for the company. That's actually not always true. Um, so start with what's most important for your company right now. And if you need to find a, a board meeting deck or the investor pitch deck or have a conversation with your CEO and, and try to identify what are the handful of most important things right now, then you just go the next layer down, which is how will I and the HR function support those things? And, and that can be a really valuable filter um, as you have all of these various you know, demands and requests coming at you to try to figure out what's most important and, and how, how that lives on your to-do list. Because you can move, I've probably said this too many times on too many uh, appearances, you can move 30 things an inch or three things a mile. And usually you and your organization will benefit a lot more from actually completing some things. So try to keep the list short so that you can actually complete a few things. So, and I think you are, I liked prepping for this because I was like, he's got good words. That's a nice way to say your verbiage. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I was like, oh, listen. But you mentioned a book that I had already heard of in one, um, a Marshall Goldsmith book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, and this is, I'd say, more relevant to folks that are listening. Uh, and not necessarily, well, it can be for startup mode, but I also, that you'll understand when I say it, but what got you here won't take you there. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to remind myself, of that as well. I'm like, well, this worked before, you know, but that might've been when we had 10 people 20 years ago, you know, versus the large number that we have now. Uh, and so when I, if I think about that and I apply it to myself, I think like, what can I do to help be more of a change agent or, you know, where do I start with that? Which I could make a list of 50 things if I wanted to sit down and do it. Um, but I think what we do a lot is kind of voice of our associates or voice of staff, what it, we can't be the ones making the decision unilaterally, of course, because what's important to them might not be important to us or vice versa. Uh, But do you find with your experience, especially with organizations that might know success currently or in the past where they're adverse to change and that really is just, that's the barrier, you know, and you've probably said it very nicely 15 different ways in a communication pattern. You're like, is this working? all right, I'm just going to have to say it. Like what you're doing is not going to work anymore. Like, so. yeah, it, it's, the, it's the price of success <laughs> is that with growth comes change. And, you know, Marshall Goldsmith's quote is so valid. Like it, what works for you at 15 people is very likely to be different than what works for you at 50 or 250 or 1500. And so just being aware of, you know, your evolving situation can help you make good, rational choices. Um, and I, I do a lot of work with founder-led businesses that, you know, that's common in the, in the high-tech startup world. And, and even in the private equity world, um, they're, they're often founders that are closely involved. And boy, when you're a founder, like that business is your baby. Um, you know, you, it's all wrapped up in your ego and self-identity and, you know, it's really hard often to change how you approach things and change processes. Um, even as a company is growing, evolving and changing, uh, there, there's, there's a lot wrapped up in there. Um, 
and and that's often the largest hurdle is acknowledging that that what got you here won't get you there and that your approach to things might need to change. And so that could be around decision making and delegating. It could be around the the leader bottlenecking certain processes. For an HR pro, I think this is also relevant. And stop me if I'm going you know too far down a rabbit hole on this. What got you here to a leadership role was likely working really hard, being pretty darn smart, being super responsive, you know, getting a lot done, being being productive and service yes. oriented, mm-hmm. being effective as a manager or leader. I, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday. Um, it's different. It's less about what you are producing yourself. And it's more about how you are navigating, how you are aligning your team, how you're building relationships. It's, it's less about how many hours you work and how much you produce. And it's more about what you're able to get done through others. And so th- the same applies. What got you here into this management role? If you overly focus on continuing to do that, it'll actually um, lead to failure um, in that new role or in that new stage of size and, and complexity of an organization. So I, that brings me to my next question, very relevant. Uh, and I'm lucky enough, or, and we are a founder-owned business still. And I think very early on and very lucky, I think, I, I mean, that's the way I would describe it, is that um, both of them were very open to, like, we, we aren't the people to do all of these things. Like, there are people that, you know, are experts in their field, or we need to acquire talent you know, on top of what we have, because of course, like I'm not an HR expert. You know, I played one on TV, you know, quote unquote, for for a period of time during my career. But I think it's what you were saying, like you kind of do a lot of different roles and you kind of just, this is what you're doing and the work and producing. Um, And if my HR um, manager SVP is listening, thank God, shout out to Susan Baxter, uh, because no, that wasn't the path that I wanted at all, or thinking like it. And I have such high respect and regard for for everyone that does it, Um, but it wasn't my craft. Uh, But that kind of leads me to my next question of talent and talent acquisition Hmm. in the key role that I think that that plays uh, with being even now, which is a little bit more difficult, but um, I would say more selective on who you're onboarding or bringing on your team, because I think you really need to dive a little deeper into how that person works, not just within the current team, but what, of course, they're bringing to the table other than just, I would say, basic skills, where it fills the job description, right? But you're like, is, is this going to work? So am I off base or how important do you regard talent acquisition? I'd say with the great resignation now, I think everyone's thoughts are like, oh, well, there's a lot of jobs that are available and there's a lot of people that are available. So this should all work, but it doesn't work at that easy. At there, all. There's been a massive power shift in the employer-employee relationship uh, over the past 18 months, 24 mm-hmm. months. Um, more jobs are available. Um, it's harder to fill them. And uh, employers that are looking for an on-site job have a seven-step interview process, you know, three panels, a, a job skills test, and you know, want to pay 50th percentile of the market 
are going to struggle to fill those jobs. Um, and, and add to it a watermelon culture interview like Gusto does. Um, you know, just a you know, cherry on top. Um, so I don't know, coming, coming back to your question, I think fit within your organization, fit is a squishy, ambiguous term, concept, and idea. Really hard to, you know, put some measurements uh, to that. Um, some, some organizations can. More challenging at smaller organizations that are evolving more rapidly. Um, but yeah, make good decisions about who you invite to join your team. Yes. Um, and move to quickly fill roles on your team, like talent availability um, is essential. I think you're, you're trying to optimize across speed and cost and quality um, for everything that you do, including talent. Um, so there, there's a bit of a Goldilocks zone here and that you don't want to move too quickly and just get a warm body in the seat, but you also don't want to, you know, look for that purple squirrel with a unicorn horn, um, <laughs> and, and, and never fill it. Um, so those are some of the judgments that business leaders and HR professionals should be aligned on, which is what is the spec and what are we willing to do to, how long are we willing to wait? What are we willing to pay? Um, for the type of talent that we're targeting. So, and that point where, and I've seen a lot of different organizations do this, and it's, it, it does have to be reactive to some degree, I think, based off of the past 18 months. But, you know, I usually tell folks, it's, you, you may not want to pay more than the median, but, but you're really trying to also support your other team members, of course, that are basically doing the work of two to three people. You know, so what would it look like if your turnover was, X versus Y, just this initial position, right? right? And I, I think some folks get it, some folks don't, you know, they think, oh, there's a cost savings, we're going to wait for the perfect, like you said, purple unicorn, where if you find one, Andrew, I mean, tell me, tell me where they are, that, that'd be well, wonderful. They're, they're right behind me on, oh, on my wall, right. my yeah, six-year-old, my eight-year-old, yeah, yeah, yes. they're all about the unicorns. Yes, well, they're on the right track, evidently. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they should they should have jobs in TA someday. Yeah, where are they working now? Just so I can get their info. <laughs> well, they're, they're working for me. They're on my payroll. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I think um, I'd like to comment a bit on the, the, the concept of paying more for talent. Yes, you know, compensation rates are moving faster than the surveys uh, by Mercer and yes. Towers Watson and all the data that's available out there is able to report. Um, but let's not forget there are other factors beyond pay. Pay is important. Manager is important. Is it an on-site job or is it a flexible job? What, what are the benefits? Um, what are the growth opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I, I um, taught, uh, so People Leader Accelerators, this uh, you know, program for HR leaders, talk about different topics each week. We talked about the employment value proposition, the EVP, just mm -hmm. last week. Um, and so why would someone come to work for you, for your company? And why would somebody choose to stay versus their alternatives? If you can really rationally, critically think through that, you can probably craft a pretty compelling story via a series of, of items, you know, it's, it's pay, it's flexibility, it's 
or you know whatever those things are, if you're thoughtful about it and intentional about it, chances are you'll be a lot more successful about it rather than just peanut butter slathering across. Mm-hmm. We're we try to pay competitively and we have you know kind of table stakes benefit offerings and you know it, it, if it's just kind of vanilla blah and it's not particularly compelling and it's and it's not repellent, um, your EVP is not very effective. So in the world of TA, I would just suggest, particularly in today's hyper-competitive environment, be thoughtful and targeted around why somebody would choose to come work for you and why they would choose to stay. Do you think that there are, and I can answer what I think, but generational differences with the value propositions? Because uh, sometimes I'll get very pointed questions of like, oh, well, the millennial workforce, they're interested in insert the latest study that's come out that somebody read. You know, and they're like, oh, it culture. And you're like, well, not not just culture. Like, I, I believe it's the sum of its parts still. You know, you can't have one and like overload on one versus and not have the rest or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we start to see, you know, my 45-year-old self, you know, as I get older and I'm not part of the youngest workforce, I'm like, yeah, no, I can totally see it. Why they would be interested for other reasons versus what I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, um, I, I actually pull it up a level. Um, most of what we ascribe to generational differences are actually life stage differences. Mm-hmm. So whether you're a member of Gen X or Gen Y or the millennials is actually less important than whether you are a family with kids or a single that's career focused or you know a, a homeowner versus a renter. Like some of those things are more important than what generation you're a part of. Nonetheless, the, the level up point is around segmentation. So different members of your workforce have different needs and priorities. So start there. Like, who are you trying to attract? If you're a engineering organization and you want to attract, you know, female software developers, what would be compelling for that particular workforce? Are you looking for new grads? Well, put together an EVP that is compelling to new grad female software engineers. Uh, If you're looking for, you know, a highly stable, highly experienced population of account managers with enterprise software sales experience, craft a base versus incentive pay plan and really great family benefits, um, you know, put together an offering that is compelling for the segment of the workforce that you're trying to attract and retain. I think that's the point. And it, and one size does not fit all. No, very valid points. Thank you. <laughs> Agreed. Um, so this might be just, I'm going to softball out here, but what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I love to ask folks this because I learn a lot. Oh, I know boy. I can already see it in your face. You're going to have to pick one because you, you give a lot of good advice or maybe two. Maybe too. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think the the one that I refer back to the most was about career. Um, it's a little bit of a story, so you may have to cut it if if we go too long. <laughs> We're not out of time. Uh, we can be over time. I love a good story. <laughs> early in my career, I worked at uh, Pepsi uh, right out of grad school. And uh, my, my boss at the time, who went on to become head of HR for Pepsi and head, you know, head of HR for a bunch of different places, um, he saw in me 
somebody that was pretty driven and ambitious and anxious to move up the corporate ladder. And uh, he gave me a bit of a story to help get me focused on the journey and not trying to get there overnight. And he said, you know, a career is like a marathon. Yeah, a marathon is 26.2 miles. A career is 30 years if you're lucky. Um, Think about it in 10-year blocks. The first 10 years is acquiring great experience. Work wherever you need to for really high-quality organizations that are great at what you do. And if you do that, if you build that foundation of great experience, the second 10 years of your career can be wealth accumulation. You'll get paid for that super high quality experience that you've acquired. And then if you've done both of those um, uh, steps, then in the third 10 years, all the choices are yours. You can try to shoot the moon for your career and become C-level at some giant organization. You can pull your parachute and be a consultant like I, like I did. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can um, you know, balance work and family in a different way than you were able to uh, earlier in your career. So it, it was a story about delayed gratification and about, um, and about intentional moves in your career that stuck with me for a long time. And it's, you know, it's a story that I've told to a lot of other people and, and now on this podcast. Oh, I love it, though. That actually, when you were talking, I was like, my first 10, that's what everybody is probably doing. Like, mm-hmm. have I done Where am I at right yeah, now? Yeah, where am I in the 10s with this? <laughs> so, um, Andrew, where can we find Scaling for Success and how can folks get in touch with you? And I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Bartlow. Um, my consulting firm is Series B Consulting. And then the executive education program for HR leaders is called peopleleaderaccelerator.com. All right, perfect. And like I said, I will put all of it in the notes. Uh, And thank you so much for joining us. We have learned something new. That is the goal. Well, thank you. All right, folks. I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to this episode of HR Liftoff. At Integrity, we believe opportunity is everything. We take an associate-first approach because when our associates succeed, our clients succeed. Whatever you need, we're ready to support. We partner with clients large and small to deliver custom staffing solutions that provide the cost, service, and scalability efficiencies you need to stay competitive. Learn more at IntegrityStaffing.com.